Good morning, everybody. Uh, I am going to speak about prayer. I just wanted to say, because um, next week's Easter, uh, just a little thing, we're going to have a cross, which we're going to put flowers on, which we've done a number of times at Easter. Chances are we, corporately, will provide a load of daffodils. If you want to make it look a bit more special, if anyone wants to bring flowers next Sunday on Easter Day, I just want to encourage you that flower buying is a good thing, and it'll be even better if we come into the building with flowers that we've brought and do something together. Just a little thought to throw in there. As I was praying ahead of this morning, um, I did feel nudged towards, uh, by the Holy Spirit, I believe, towards a a morning for breakthrough. And uh, Steve B., you came and spoke about breakthrough, and I was encouraged that that is on God's heart for us this morning. And by breakthrough, we mean not just the steady development of things that happens over time as God continues to pour his life into us and to build us up, but things changing in a moment and significantly. And I just want to encourage you to hold on to what Steve Begue shared and uh, not to let that hope or expectation of some significant change ebb away as you listen to me, but my prayer is that it, it increases. I am going to be speaking about prayer and what is really a very basic issue in prayer. And if you're going to write down anything from this morning, um, I really hope that you might write down what I'm about to say, uh, which is that how we pray is determined by our view of God. How we pray is determined by our view of God. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, I prefer for this one verse, the old King James translation. It's very helpful to us. It says there that we see through a glass darkly. We see through a glass darkly. It's speaking of the perfection of God's love and of heaven and of who he is. And it says clearly that we see something of God, but we don't yet see him with entire clarity. We don't yet see him perfectly. One day we will. But now we see him as through a glass darkly. And so if our praying is determined by our view of God, then some other questions tumble out. How much do we know this God to whom we're praying? How much do we know him? Do we know the one with whom we're talking? Who is this Jesus in whose name we pray? Who is he? And that connects us, that question connects us back again to the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Because in Matthew's gospel, that question, who is he? comes out right in the middle of that story. I'm going to read from the beginning of Matthew chapter 21. It says, as they approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples with him, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them. And bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went 
And they did as Jesus instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who's this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's the first answer given in this the Easter story to who Jesus is. Who is he? Well, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. But then I'd like to turn ahead with you to the verses that you've got on the screen there from chapter 22, the end of chapter 22. In between the bit I've just read and chapter 22, as a number of things go on, uh, Jesus clears the temple and uh, then gets asked a whole series of questions in the temple. And the one we're going to read now is the last of those questions. And it comes back again to this same question, who is he? Who is Jesus? It says that from verse 30, 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they replied, he's the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and this is quoting Psalm 110, which is entitled A Psalm of David, and is speaking by the Spirit because it's Scripture, and all Scripture is God-breathed, so that's what Jesus knows and is reporting. How is it then that David, King David, says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if then David calls him, that is the Christ, Lord... How can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply. And from that day, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What we see here is the Jews, the Jewish and um, the Pharisees in particular, answering the question, so who is, who is he? Who's the Christ? And they give another answer. Well, he's a king like David was a king. The crowd said he's a prophet. Pharisees say he's a king, and Jesus says, (laughs) you're still not seeing the whole picture. It's more, I, Jesus has to say, I am more than you have yet grasped. I am more than you think. You see, it was natural, as it's natural for us today, it was natural for the Jews to grasp after an understanding of who Jesus was in terms that they knew. They knew what a prophet was, though they'd not had one for 400 years. They knew what a king was, though they'd not had one of them for the best part of 200 years. Um, And they tried to make sense of who Jesus was through those words that they knew. And Jesus said, you're still not getting it. It's okay to make the comparison because Jesus is indeed prophet because he speaks for God and he is king because he rules with God's authority, but he's greater than any comparison that we can make. It's like trying to describe God 
in terms that we can grasp, it's a little bit like this. We live in a city called Oxford, and there's a map where we've taken, someone has taken that three-dimensional, lived out through time, bustling reality and reduced it to a diagram, which is helpful. It's a, it's a true representation of the city that we live in, but it's not the reality. Uh, I can stick up a picture of the city to remind us of the reality, but that other picture is still not the reality. To see this, we'd have to go a mile or so and look and see and live in it. And it's like that with attempts to explain God in words. There is a reality of God, which is not just on a grander scale, but of a wholly different kind to that which we readily grasp hold of. I've got another picture. Um, My favorite picture from this presentation is of me. Look at that. And... I thought this might make it even more obvious. That's a picture of me. That's me. It's a true likeness of me, whether I like it or not. But it's not me. I'm here. And living. And breathing. Talking to you. And that's what it's like with words like, Jesus is a prophet. Well, yeah, he speaks God's word. But that's not really getting beyond the shallows of the ocean of the fact that he has all wisdom can speak of Christ being king in the line of David. And yes, he has power. But you know what? He has all power. And he is greater beyond what we naturally think as we hear these words. It's not enough to say that Jesus is the most powerful king. Um, That won't do. There's more to it than that. In Isaiah 55, God himself is described saying this, Come to me that you may live, because he is the source of life. He is where everything finds its strength. Everyone who has ever lived has received their life from God. There is no other kind of life. There is no other kind of existence than to receive our life from him who is the source of all life. Paul quoted some, a poet when he was in Athens saying, this of God, in him we live and move and have our being. It's in him that we exist. If it were not for him, we wouldn't even exist. I wonder whether you sometimes reflect on the wonder of having had a mother. Some of you still have your mother alive, and you might be looking at her now. This might be a slightly awkward moment for you, therefore. Sorry, Chris, you're right next to your mum. But the wonder of having once been inside your mother. I don't know if you think, isn't that like, like, I would not exist were it not for that process. Like, I... I owe my mother my life. I wouldn't exist. It's a profound kind of a thought. And it's true of God. If it were not for him, we wouldn't even exist. He is the source of all life. Is Jesus prophet? Yes. Is he king? Yes. Is he more? Yes, he is. He's the source of all reality. He's the unity that holds all things together. He saturates every moment of our lives. 
Every rational thought, every choice we make, every emotion we feel, every relationship we have, he is there and giving us life. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your right hand will guide me. Your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. It's amazing. That is what God is like. You know, a little bit later in the story of um, the Easter week, Jesus says, my father, if I ask him, will put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And that is because Jesus is the chief of the angels, but he's nothing like being the chief angel. He's chief over the angels, but he's nothing like being the chief angel. He's not anything like an archangel who happens to be at the top of the pile. Rather, he is the reason that angels exist. He made them. He created all things. It's not enough to say that Jesus is the most powerful king. We could say that, and it would be true, but it's not enough. We could say, like, we could try and find words for it and say the most powerful human ruler who's ever lived is like a candle flame and that Jesus is the blazing sun. We could say that, but it wouldn't be enough because God is not some very large and strong being differing from other beings only in being older and stronger and cleverer. John's gospel begins speaking of Jesus as the word. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And we speak of God as creator, and that's right. But God is not creator in the sense of a painter working on a canvas who merely rearranges existing materials into a better composition. Rather, the paint and the canvas only exist because of him. If God... If he could, he can't, but if he ceased to live, if God ceased to live, then the paint and the canvas and the very elements of which they are made would not simply explode or decay because those are processes that unfold through time. And without God, there would be no time. They would simply cease to exist. God is the source of life. He is the source of all that is. Riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they say, who is he? And with the best vocabulary that people can find, they say, oh, he's a prophet. Something divine going on with 
this guy. Yes, there is something to find you, but it's more than all of that. And the point of this practically in turning our thinking towards what it means for us is this. We depend on him. We depend on him. Every heartbeat, every breath, my life, your life, depends each moment upon God who is eternal, immortal, abundantly alive, the wellspring of life. He sustains us. Do we find this hard to understand? Yeah. I think we do. So did Job. Mind you, he had a number of other questions and provocations to understand, try to understand things. And he asks God and says, God, explain yourself. How did God reply? The Lord answered Job out of a storm and said, Who is this? that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of hell been shown to you? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Where is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their place? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades, the stars? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do, they, do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you saying, here we are? Who endowed the heart with wisdom and gave understanding to the mind? That's the nub of it. Got our questions. We ask them of God. And God after pointing out a few basic facts, says, who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Like Job, we have our questions, but let us hold this in mind. We cannot know anything apart from God anyway. We owe him our existence, but we also know, we also derive from him 
any understanding that we have. And we can see that in several ways. One is that it's only because God keeps the world in order that anything we know has any value. If I know the route that I take to work, that's only useful because of God's faithfulness, which means that that route still exists tomorrow. There is no merit in my knowledge other than God's sustaining faithful hand that holds the world in order. And whatever power any one of us has to understand anything is a gift given by God. As it says here in Job 38, who gave understanding to the mind? Well, it's God who gave and who gives understanding to the mind. Where this is taking us is that not only do we depend on him, but we depend on him utterly, utterly. And every thought to the contrary is an illusion. If you think that you can make your own way in the world, if you think that you can manage your own health or grow your own wealth, it's an illusion. I'm struggling to manage my new facial hair. turns out to be quite complicated. I have growing admiration for other men who have gone before me. That is stretching me. It's an illusion that we clutch to, that we can control life, and that our knowledge is the linchpin that makes life work. It's an illusion. We clutch to that illusion because it helpfully obscures the fact that we utterly depend on God. It helps that we, we I, mean, I don't mean helpfully in the sense of helping us grow spiritually, not that kind. I mean, just emotionally, it's easier for us to imagine that we're in charge than it is to have our eyes opened to the reality that we utterly depend on God. Because to live happily depending on God requires us to trust him. And our trust in him is something that is still growing. But you know, if you keep on following God, he has ways and means of dispelling the illusion. He has ways and means of dispelling the illusion. For Job, it was death and boils. So God's got a pretty broad palette from which he will work, a wide toolbox. But he is determined to rid us of the illusion that we control our own lives and destinies. Because he made us to trust in him. Reading on in these few chapters at the end of Job, there are a few verses about a beast called Behemoth, which might be an elephant or a hippopotamus. The Hebrew just means the best beast, the beast par excellence. So we're not quite sure, but think of either a hippopotamus or an elephant as you will. Look at the Behemoth, which I made along with you, which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of his thighs are close-knit, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first amongst the works of God, yet his maker can approach him 
with a sword. There's more there about the strength of that one creature of God. And then there's another creature of God that gets described. But it says here, look at the behemoth which I made along with you. Along with you. Uh, God not only made all of creation and all of the wonders in it, but he delights to remind us that it's us, human beings, who are the focus of his attention. It's us that he made in his image. It's us whom he loves with an everlasting love. Back to Psalm 139, where it says, verse 13, You created my inmost being. It was you that knit me together in my mother's womb. It was you, God. And I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And at the start of the psalm, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. God made us and he loves us. He knows us completely and he loves us. And what that means is that we depend on God utterly, but also we can depend on him gladly because of his, it's not just that he's, the powerful source of all things. And, you know, sort of whether we like it or not, heck, you know, illusion stripped away, we have to depend on him utterly. But we can depend on him gladly. We can trust him and love him because he is good and his love for us is everlasting. And that's what we experience when we pray. That is what we experience when we pray. As we pray, we remember who he is and we recall our utter dependence on him and we remember that he loves us. And that's what it means to pray, to bring before him the whole of who we are because he knows anyway and he loves us. Jesus said, when two or three gather in my name, I'm there. He's here now as we're gathered in his name. And when we pray, we encounter God and we experience him in prayer. Uh, Rod spoke to us towards the beginning of the meeting saying, the issue is not whether there's an openness in heaven. The question is whether there's an openness in our hearts. That's what prayer is all about. As we pray, We open our hearts to God. We name before God the stuff, the joys, the sorrows, the things that are growing and developing about which we wonder how do we steer them and the things that are stuck and in which we need breakthrough 
We bring all of those things and others besides to God. And as we pray, we open our hearts. We don't just name things to him, but we encounter him. We find ourselves touching this reality that he is the source of all life. And the Holy Spirit comes to us and reveals God to us. And though he is so utterly unlike us, so utterly beyond us, we find that by the Spirit of God, we truly know him. His love, the very love that is shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that love we find poured into our hearts. We feel it and we enjoy knowing him. So prayer, it's not like asking a rich mate for a favor. Rather, it is a communion with the source of all goodness, the owner of all things, the power of all powers, the origin and sustainer, the spirit of life. When Christ was walking this earth, poverty could not grind him down. And death could not hold him. And that makes all the difference to how we pray. C.S. Lewis wrote in a sermon called The Weight of Glory, We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. I said at the beginning that how we pray is determined by our vision of God. How we pray is determined by our vision of God. What we will pray for is determined by our understanding of who he is. And if our praying is too small, it's because our vision of God is too small. We ask for too little. We ask for too little. But if we spend time with God in his word, in prayer, what happens is faith rises up. Something starts to, a growing trust and confidence in God comes up inside us. And we find, sometimes to our surprise, you know, I do trust him. And I am glad to depend on him. I am glad to lay this out before God in prayer. I'm willing to depend on him and to go out on a limb, knowing that I'm not going out on a limb for him, but I'm going out on a limb with him. Because I wouldn't even be on the limb if he weren't with me, because I wouldn't exist. He's always with me, sustaining me. Think of a couple of things that we have coming up corporately as a church. Simon has reminded us of the turning launch. I wonder how you've been praying about the turning launch. I I wonder what kind of praying has been going on. I wonder, actually, how much that turning launch has even been taken to God in prayer. I think it's a really key question for us, because as we pray about that event that's coming, that season of activity that's coming, what will happen is we'll encounter him, the source of all life, the one who is inexhaustibly 
at work in the world to cause people to be born again. We'll experience him. We'll not just think about him, but we'll encounter the spirit who was at work to raise Jesus from the dead. And faith will come and we will see that planned week of activity radically differently. We won't be analyzing its methods. We won't be questioning the psychology. We'll be seeing it as God sees it and willing to step into it in the way that he intends for each one of us. That's what praying does. It's a wonderful communion with the one who is the source of all life, of all goodness. The one who is at work in the world for his glory and out of love for people. We touch him. Everything's changed. And of course our own actions change in the light of that. Of course they do. Because we're changed. I want to say, if you've reached a resolution that you're not going to get involved with that turning launch that's coming up, um, I'd like to gently (laughs) question that resolution. I am... I'm finding myself, and I spend quite a bit of time in church meetings of one sort or another, and have done for 20-odd years. Um, And I am seeing something different, and I am seeing something new happening. I pretty much cannot sit in a prayer meeting without someone telling me about someone that they led to the Lord. Um, When we have, I participate in gatherings of people representing, or leaders of different churches in different places. It used to be, even a year ago, when we met, we said, oh, how are things going? And people would talk about, oh, well, we're running this event, and we've got this need for a new staff member here, and that kind of stuff, and we'd pray about that. Now, what normally happens is we just have a chorus going around the room. We had two or three people bo- bo- well, you know, born again on our Alpha course. Um, someone led their mum to the Lord. And it's just like round the room, it's just hap- that is a change that has taken place. And I know for a fact that many of those stories are coming through the witness of people who've engaged with doing this thing called the turning, this pattern of street outreach that we've done. Um, I think there are a couple of people who probably need to tell their own stories in due course who aren't here this morning. But people that you and I, if you're part of this church, know are not evangelists who have recently led family members to the Lord who they've been hoping to find a way to talk with them for the last 20 odd years and in the last few weeks those kinds of conversations are happening and people are committing themselves to Christ that if you resolve not to be involved I'd like to gently question that and say I don't know how practical or straightforward it is for you but isn't that a good thing so there's the provocation and then my question is have you prayed about it have you prayed because that can change everything the other thing that's coming up is is this thing this faith is rising for debt to tumble well faith is rising amongst some people faith is rising amongst people who prayed about it that's where faith's rising faith's not rising because there's been there's been a leaflet produced does not produce faith 
Faith is not rising because there's been notices about it. Faith is not rising because there's an outstanding need. I mean, the leaflet is helpful. It says a number of things. But faith rises when we pray. We say to God, well, 1.8 million pounds, that's a lot of money. To whom am I praying? Is it a rich mate who might have 1.8 million pounds lying around? No. We're praying to the one without whom money would not exist. And who creates out of nothing. And without whom, the bank that we owe money to wouldn't exist. I mean, he has a broad palette of ways of working, right? Do what he likes. But we can pray and pray for, and as we do that, faith will rise for debt to tumble and from freedom from debt. Just to try and land this a little bit more, because those are corporate needs that I need to keep bringing before us things we're doing together but we're not just you know one corporate blob that has one or two things going on we're individuals in the body of Christ and there are all kinds of different things going on so I wanted to just broaden this thing out and remind us of a few of the names that are given to God in the Old Testament he is he is I've described him mostly this morning as the source of all life and the power of all powers well the scriptures put some practical names onto uh, to God, which help us understand what this means for us. He is Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. If you have a need for provision, it's in his nature. It's who he is. You come and pray to the God who provides. That's who he is. It's not something he might do. He is Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord our peace. If you need peace, Pray, and you'll be praying to Jehovah Shalom. It's who he is, and he will grant you peace. Jehovah Ra, shepherd. Shepherds, by Jesus' Jesus definition, seek the lost, as well as caring for those in the fold. You can pray to him for your own needs, as one within the fold and in need of care, and pray to him, knowing that his heart is for those who are outside the fold, whom he will diligently seek. Jehovah Nissi, that means the Lord, our banner. And banners were meant to imply victory. He is our guarantee of victory because he is victorious. He is the conqueror of death and the conqueror of all evil. And Jehovah Tzidkenu, meaning the Lord, our righteousness. He will put things right. He can do no other. This is our Lord. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. People say, who is he? Who is he? You can hear some of them saying, who does he think he is? Well, he knew who he was. The question is, do we? And more to the point for today, do we pray in a way that is suitable for God? that fits who God is? Do we pray to him like he's a rich mate? Do we pray to him like our lives depend on him? Because they surely do.